Daniel 25. First of all, I just want to welcome you this morning. We didn't have a real formal welcome at the beginning. And uh, if you're new with us, I, I pray that you'll come and not just experience perhaps some conversation and, and hope people around you will love you, but I really hope that you experience the Lord this morning because um, that's what we're about. Um, I know that the, the most important thing for me in a, in a context of worship is to experience and encounter the living God and to know that he is alive and to be reminded that this world is not all there is, to be reminded that there's someone who loves me, um, whose love overcame and overcomes our sin, and just to be reminded of who he is. That's, that's why we gather, and I hope that you leave here this morning experiencing um, him at a deeper level through not only music and prayer, but, but through the word. And um, the word that we're going to be looking at this morning, which is really connected to last week's message, I realized after I preached it this last, um, this last service, that really, in order to balance what I'm about to say out, you have to listen to that one too, because these are kind of two sides of, of the same coin. Um, but it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 25, and um, it comes from the life of David, an experience and a, a learning lesson that he had to learn. And I know I just prayed. Let me just pray one more time. Lord, feed us. Help me. And help our hearts to grasp your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I love about the younger generation um, that seems to be taking root and taking off is that there is, on the part of many uh, younger Christians, a passion for what we might call social justice. Um, a desire to see um, the gospel not just proclaimed, which it must be, but also to be lived out, which means that we care not just um, uh, about mercy and compassion, but also care about justice uh, on the part of or for the cause of the poor or those, those who are um, uh, may be helpless or, or don't have as much ability to defend themselves. That there's, a, there's something about that that's the heart of Jesus who really did care about um, and God the Father who cares about the orphans and the widows and those who, are, who don't have access to power. And, um, and I love the fact that, 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 that uh, there is a growing movement of that. And I think we're seeing a, a reflection of that in, in things like the tutoring ministry and people getting involved in Alpha Crisis. Those are all uh, ministries not just of compassion but also justice because the protection of life is a, is a, is a, is a ministry of, of justice, which is an aspect of our, of our love. And yet at the same time, what's interesting about this whole issue of justice is that we live in, in a broken world. I don't have to tell you that. But we live in a world where, where we often find ourselves angry. Now, there are, in my estimation, some things that we shouldn't get angry about, like, you know, which way the toilet paper hangs on the spool, you know? Or whether you put the cap on the toothpaste tube or not, or um, you can think of other, other things, um, whether you put the spoons in the dishwasher side up or side down. That kind of stuff is such small stuff that we really shouldn't get upset or angry over, just kind of let it, that stuff ride. But then there are other things in life and in the world uh, that we experience where I think and I believe it is our, it is, um, it's fundamentally human and righteous to be angry. Um, and what I'm about to say may, may sound like, wow, that doesn't sound like it should come from a Christian pastor, but there are times when we should feel a sense of indignation and, and, and anger when evil is real and when it's hurting people, even our, ourselves. Um, issues like adultery um, should create a sense of, of anger, um, deception, betrayal, oppression, abortion, abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, uh, injustice towards the poor. All of these things we should feel angry about. And I think that's probably why the Apostle Paul 
said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, he told the church, be angry and do not sin. That, it's, that's a pretty amazing statement from the Apostle Paul. He is giving us a command or an imperative, which says, be angry, but do not sin. There is, there is something about being human and loving righteousness that creates a sense of anger when we see or experience injustice. But he's really careful, Paul is, really careful to qualify how we're not supposed to deal with that feeling or emotion of, of anger or indignation. Just five verses later, he says, let all ra- bitterness and wrath be put away from you. So he's telling us like there's this tightrope that we walk to be angry in the face of evil and injustice, but don't let it turn into bitterness and, and wrath. That is how we hold it and what we do with it, how we express it is, is, is a different story. And, and I just believe that, that there needs to be um, a place for legitimate anger on the part of God's people. We just got to be careful of how we hold it and how, how, we, how we deal with it. In fact, I would, I would say that anger many times is an expression of love. That when we see people hurt that we love, we feel a sense of anger. And not to have anger in those moments is actually to be indifferent and insensitive and not to love. Sometimes this anger comes out of a sense of love. I think God gets angry, because we read about God's anger a lot in the Bible, is angry because he loves his creation. Yet it's how we as as fallen humans, broken humans, who don't have a really good capacity to deal with our anger, deal with it. That's really the issue. And and this particular story in the life of King David is, is, uh, I think, instructive for us on how not to deal with anger and injustice. Now, as I said, um, this message needs to be kind of as the counterbalance of the last one. Um, chapter 24, we saw David shine like the stars when, you know, his enemy, King Saul, who's a very evil king, um, finds his way into a cave, and David has the chance to kill him, but he doesn't. And we saw that, that David showed him mercy. He showed his enemy, someone who, who tried to kill him, showed his enemy mercy, showed him respect and uncommon kindness. And in that story, David came out smelling like a rose. And um, he did good. It was a moment of victory because he was dealing with um, injustice from somebody who had been placed over him in authority. In this story, however, David doesn't fare so well in dealing with injustice when it doesn't come from somebody over him. Now, the story begins with an odd couple. That's when I read the first uh, several verses of this chapter, I thought, man, this is the oddest couple in the Bible, the quintessential odd couple, like Walter Matthau and Jack, whatever his name was, you know, the odd couple. There is so much disparity in the marriage that we're about to look at that I think it, it, it stands as the most unequally yoked of marriages, perhaps, in the entire Bible. Um, this is how it opens up, and this kind of sets the, the tone for, the, for what takes place afterwards. We're told in verse 2, chapter 25, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. He was a businessman. Uh, the man was very rich, or filthy rich is another way of putting it. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man, or the name of the man was Nabal, or Nabal, is how you pronounce it in Hebrew, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Caleb, Calebite. Now, I, I don't know if you've met a couple before where you thought to yourself after you met them, how did that guy ever end up with that girl? 
How did that guy end up with that? This guy's a buffoon, and she is smart, and she's beautiful. I know. I've seen couples like that where I'm just like, wow, how did that, how did that ever come together? Well, it just goes to show that it's always been the case. You have sometimes these mismatched marriages. You have a guy on the one hand whose name is Nabal, which in Hebrew means fool or moron or idiot. And I've pondered, like, like, what were the parents thinking when they named their son? You know, can you imagine going to a, to a family reunion and introducing your family? Hi, this is my wife, Abigail, my daughter, Rachel, my, my other daughter, Sally, and this is my son, Moron. But that, I'm just going to call him Moron because that's really um, what Nabal means. And, and it actually says it in the text a little bit later. So he's called a fool. He's a moron. Um, and he lives it out. He's, he's called harsh here, uh, badly behaved, which means he's, he, he acts immorally. So he's filthy rich, probably arrogant. He's mean-hearted, and he's an immoral man. That's Nabal. But he's married to this woman called Abigail. And Abigail is described as not only beautiful, physically beautiful, attractive, but she's also somebody who's discerning, and she's wise. And her name, Abigail, means my father is joy. So you got moron and my father is joy. And the very fact that this woman would stay with this man, I think is a testament to her character. So that's kind of the introduction of the odd couple. Well, why is that important? Because um, David just happens to be, him and his men, his 600 men, happen to be in the area of Nabal's sheep and his goats and his shepherds. Remember, he's on the run. And so he is he's living near or on the land on which uh, Nabal pastures his, his sheep and also his goats. So, so they're in the same basic vicinity. But David, um, with his 600 men out in the middle of, of, of the wilderness, is in constant need of sustenance, of, of, of food. It's, you don't take 600 guys, 600 mouths out into the wilderness without a need for, for food to feed them. But it's interesting, the story tells us that David not once, or, nor any one of his 600 men, um, cause injustice or steal a single sheep or goat from Nabal, despite his thousands. That is, they refuse, despite their hunger, hunger to, to sin, to cause evil or injustice against this man named Moron. Not only that, but we find a little bit later on also that he is committed to protecting both the shepherds and the sheep of this man he doesn't even know. This kind of, again, um, reflects the character of what we've come to know about King David and, and what seems to be the general pattern of his life is he is a man of both justice and also kindness. Justice and kindness. He's a good guy. He's a man after God's own heart. Um, well, he still needs food. And so David does the ethical thing, and he, he, he sends an envoy of his, of his young men um, to go to Nabal, who has all of these resources, to ask him, do you have some food to spare? You know, David has done good kindness to this man, showed kindness in protecting his possessions. Um, and he's just asking for basic food and so forth. And this is Nabal's response. Verse 10. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants or slaves. There's another way of translating that. There are many slaves these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? And David's men turned away and came back and told him all this. Now, Nabal not only refuses to extend basic kindness to David 
and his men who have done kindness to Nabal. Um, But he also insults David. He refers to him as like a, a slave who's who run away from his master or, or a nobody. Like, who, who, who is this David? That's what, that's what he's saying. Now, based upon what Abigail later says, which we're going to read, I do think Nabal knew who David was. I think he knew where he was going, and he knew that he had fought battles on behalf of Israel. He did know who he was. He just didn't care because he's a moron. That's why. The Bible does call people morons and fools from time to time. His men come back, and actually... It, one of, the, one of the words that's used of what Nabal did to, to David's men is he, he railed at them. And again, harsh, he's badly behaved, he's a fool. Well, word gets back to David, and David's just like us, he, he's a human, and, and there's times after you've been running hard, you've, you've experienced a lot of evil in your own life, and you're just, your tank is empty. Those are the times when you're, you tend to lose your temper. When you're, you're dry and, you know, a thousand things are on your shoulders and someone comes up and does something wrong, you just explode. Well, it, this, this is the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. David actually snaps. His, 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 his anger boils way over and it, at this insult. And this is what he tells his men. Verse 13, he says, every man strap on his sword. He's got 600 men, like a company of Marines. Um, every man strapped on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went down after David, while 200 remained uh, with the baggage. So he has 400 men with him. And all these men have swords on, um, heading down to Nabal's little rancheria, his little casa on the mesa, not intending to play badminton or, or have sword fights. They're going down to spill blood. That is, they're going down to, to take his life. And not just his life. But the text tells us, which we will read in a moment, that he intends on taking every life of every male person connected to the house of Nabal. That's not just murder. That's massacre. That's how mad he is. Like, he's ticked off. He's had it up to here. I am done. And he's going on a rampage. This is a hit squad, is what it is. He's taking a hit squad down to wipe this guy and his, all parts of his male family out. Now, you think about the justice of that. That isn't justice. I don't know of any country or culture where um, being stingy or being rude is a capital offense, unless you do it to a king. David's not a king yet. And yet he's willing to, in response to this personal injury, this insult of words and just holding back kindness, he's willing to strap on a sword, take the life of this man and all the male uh, people in his house. Now, that, that's how mad he is. He's upset. He's about to com- mur- commit murder, commit massive injustice, which it had it taken place, I don't know what would happen to David in his trajectory towards the throne. But he's mad. He's upset. Just like you and I would be. He's a fallen, broken man like you and I. He's not following Paul's words, which were written much later than his life, of be angry and do not sin. No, he's being angry. He's going to sin in a huge, big way. Well, the story continues, and and someone gets wind of this and comes and tells Abigail, my father's joy, the one who's both discerning, wise, and she's beautiful. And she instantly goes into action. Like you'd expect a person who who cares, who loves, who is just, um, and who wants to use resources to help avert a crisis. She springs into action in verse 18. We read, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and 100 clusters of, of raisins and two, uh, 
200 cakes of figs and laid them on, on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I, have come a- I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. That would have got her in serious massive trouble. This, who's a harsh, mean, and overly controlling, domineering, angry person. Verse 20, and, she, and as she rode on the donkey, he came down under cover of the mountain. Behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, either he said this to himself or said this to his men, surely in vain have I guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. He didn't missing a single thing. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. That's severe. And in order to get in the way, Abigail initiates this, this kind of massive food gathering. Now, I don't know how she, in a, in a short period of time, mustered up 200 loaves and, and five sheep already prepared like Betty Crocker on steroids. Um, however she did it, perhaps they were already prepared for the feast that was happening, but she grabs all of this food, enough to feed David's company of, of, uh, of soldiers, and she, she marches out towards him. And she is going to put herself in the middle of a very dangerous situation. On the one hand, we have a, a, an ordinarily kind and just man by the name of David who is, who's in a rage. You, you can tell from the words. He's really upset. He's ticked off. Generally speaking, you don't want to go, you know, meet a person like that in that state. Meanwhile, her husband's back at home. She leaves and doesn't tell him. And if he finds out, he's going to be really upset. So she's putting herself in a very dangerous position. It takes a lot of courage to actually put yourself in between David and the moron. All right? But she gets to him, and this is what she says to David. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell down on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt That whole statement is so Jesus-like. On me alone. Now, she's an innocent party. She didn't know anything about this, but she's saying on me alone be the guilt of my moron husband is what she's doing. Getting in the way, she's substituting herself. Please, and she's begging David in his enraged state, please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow. That's, that's, she's talking about her husband. She's actually stating the truth. My husband is a worse, worthless fool. He's, he's, a, he's a moron. Nabal, for as his name is, so, he, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is, is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. That is, she's saying I'm innocent although she's calling down guilt on her and her alone. Verse 26, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. She already speaks as if the Lord has already restrained him from committing this evil. That gives you a sense of her confidence and faith, not in herself, but in the Lord. The Lord is restraining, even in this meeting between her and David. Um, Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, that's a way of saying murder, and from saving with your own hand. By the way, saving with your own hand, um, vengeance is a way of saving yourself when you take it upon yourself. The way it's talked about here, it's attempting to save your little world by taking justice on another in an inappropriate way. Um, So from saving your own hand. Now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. She's not really 
favorable towards her husband, you can tell, although she does save him in, in, in the short term. And now let the, the, this present, all of this food and the, the 200 loaves and so forth that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. She continues on, please forgive the trespass of your servant for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in a bundle of living in the care of the Lord. That's an interesting statement just because she's saying that I recognize, David, that your life is like in a shepherd's bag in the Lord's hand and and he's going to save your life. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as, as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, she knows he's going to be king. Um, uh, my Lord shall have no cause for grief or pains of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, that is David, then remember your servant, that is remember me, and he is going to remember her. What she says here is it's the biggest little speech in this whole, in this chapter, and it's pivotal. It's what changes the course of David's intentions. And she puts herself in the way in a very Christ-like way, as you already saw, just like saying, on me alone, be the guilt. Um, and, and she, ironically enough, is the one now restraining David from killing, whereas David in the previous chapter was the one restraining his men from killing King Saul. That David, um, comparing the two chapters, David had, had a real issue with raising his hand against God, the Lord's anointed, but when it comes to this guy named Moron or Fool or, or Nabal, um, he had no problem just, just squashing him, uh, or at least that was his intention, squashing him in his house. Um, but she gets in the way, and she has this, like, obviously this, this deep understanding of God's purposes of what's taking place in Israel. She knows that David is fighting the battles and that he's headed towards the throne. And it seems as if she's passionate about that. And one of the main motivations in her getting in the way is to save him, not just her husband. And she's seeking first the purposes of the Lord, not just her own self-protection. But kind of when it boils down to it, what she's doing here and how the Lord uses her in this story and in David's life is that she is being used by the Lord as a gracious instrument of restraint. She's being used by the Lord as a gracious instrument of restraint. A gift, just in the nick of time, the Lord sends her. But I want you to notice that she has the courage to step into the gap, into the middle between a very angry man and a very harsh husband and to get in the way. And I I believe that there's a a lesson for us in in that Um, because it is a Christ-like quality in her life that is kind of transposing this to our time, our church family and people that you know. You know, are we willing to, to get in the middle of things? as opportunity provides, as the Spirit leads, are we willing to get in the middle of things um, as God's instrument of restraining grace in another's life? Are we willing to get in the middle? Now, a reason I think this is worth a pausing and considering is because, um, in, in, in my opinion, um, we live in a culture that's very reluctant to get in the middle of things. Um, we talk about not meddling, um, not getting in one another's business, and so forth, 
And, and there's, a, there's a place for that. I mean, you don't want to just jump into somebody's stuff. But at the same time, uh, I think we're, we're, well, we're on the opposite extreme in many respects. And, and one of the main reasons why is because we don't want to get in the middle of something is because we might get bit. And that's, we're afraid of getting bit. I mean, it's like two dogs going at it. You don't want to get in the middle because you might get bit. You know, it's, I had Springer Spaniel growing up. Actually, we had a whole series of Springer Spaniels. This is not a right turn, by the way. It comes back. You know, medium-sized dog, and, and mine happened to be CJ, and, and um, I think I was in high school at the time, and, and my neighbor friend had this big black lab, and the, normally black labs have a great disposition, family dog, lick you to death, right? But this black lab didn't like my Springer Spaniel, and, and one day he was coming by our house, and, and this black lab, who was sizably bigger, um, came running at the Springer Spaniels, CJ, and, and their mouths started going, you know, growling and barking and biting, and just like a flurry of, of biting, and... Um, and, you know, conventional wisdom says, don't, don't break up the two dogs, you're going you're gonna to get bit. But, but I'm, I'm standing there, I'm watching my Springer Spaniel just getting pummeled. I mean, this dog is chewing up its un- underside and is going at its neck. And, and we're like, I love my dog, right? And so it's like this instinctive part of me. I, I yelled at my friend, you grab that dog, I'll grab this dog. And we, we pulled him apart. And fortunately, didn't get bit. But... Just like in those moments when you see like, um, like a crisis happening, uh, wouldn't love demand that you do get in the middle? And again, I'm not saying unwisely or without leading of the Spirit or so forth. Without, Don't do it carelessly, but isn't that what we're supposed to do in love? I mean, I, I, think, I, I wonder how many marriages or families might have been saved if when their friends see the crisis coming down, they just said, you know what? I don't want to get in the middle because I'm a busybody. I love you, and I just feel like I need to tell you what I see in hopes that maybe God will use me as an instrument of restraint in your life, of gracious restraint. And those are some, some places oftentimes we're not willing to go in our friendships and church family and so forth. As, you know, you see a crisis coming like Abigail saw, and she said, you know, I, I, got, I got to put myself at risk here. And let me ask you, let's, is... Uh, Jesus is our, is our ultimate example. Did he get in the middle? I mean, think about it. He, he came for, for people dead in their trespasses and sins, people of injustice, people who are enemies. He stepped down into our shoes and, and uh, loving us. And yet, what did we as a, as a human race do to him? Well, we, let's see, we denied him justice and we, we tortured him and denied him and betrayed him and and we pinned him to a cross because he came to get in the middle and that he was also the one that said, Father, on me alone be the guilt of my people. And then the father says, okay, yes. And he pours down the full weight of judgment for God's people on him alone instead of us. I mean, he, he is the middle. He is the middle. The whole gospel This whole thing called the Bible pivots on the fact that Jesus got in the middle, the mediator between God and man. He was the middle person. And he got bit. And if if we're willing to, again, with wisdom and leading of the Spirit of God, say, Lord, I want to be used, and I'm willing to put myself in a position where I might risk the relationship with my brother by saying what I need to say in love, but I'm going to risk it getting bit or losing the relationship because I care more about that person than the relationship I have with them. That's courage. And I really think 
um, if we're going to be brothers, sisters, and family to each other, then as, you know, who you're connected to, keep watch over them in a, in a, in a loving way. Um, not the small stuff, but just, you know, as you see crises looming on the horizon, just say, I, I'm willing to be the middleman here, and prayerfully, I hope that God will use me as an instrument of grace. That's, that's Abigail's example. She got in the middle. Um, she was willing to be an instrument of grace, and I, I, I pray that we will as too. I think I can probably speak for most of you who are Christians. You can probably go back to a person who spoke to you in your life, perhaps in a way that said, you know, I don't think you should do this because it's not what the Lord would want. And they're coming into your life at that moment, switched the trajectory of where you were headed. I know I can. You know, someone who is willing to risk my relationship with him and willing to say, Dan, I, I love you, brother, but this relationship you're in is, is wrong. And, and the part that that played in my life is, is, is huge because it, it completely diverted the direction I was going because someone got in the middle. And so I'm saying, in love, get in the middle um, as the Lord leads what works in David's life, she changes the trajectory of his intentions. In verse 32, we read, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord. Notice he was angry. Now he's blessing. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. I like how he, he like blesses her. He's like so thankful she got in the way. This may not be the case every time. People might not be excited that you get in the way, but... David sees something deeper than just this woman who gets in the way. He's willing to take a stand and, and be courageous and speak respectfully and lovingly towards him. Um, he sees the hand of God. You notice the very first blessing? It isn't for her or to her. It's to the Lord. He's like, blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, who, who's the one who um, has sent you. He's the one who moved you to in haste to gather all that bread and come and meet me and put yourself in the middle. This is the work of the Lord. He says it again. For surely is the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me. It's the Lord who's doing the work here. She's just the instrument. And David has the eyes to see it. He sees that God's hand is in this meeting. God is personally meeting and averting what would normally be a tragedy. And there is a lesson for us in that too. And that is the lesson of being able to have our eyes open and ears are open and heart to believe when God moves providentially in our life to actually listen to it. He, he hears the voice of the Lord speaking through Abigail. He sees the hand of the Lord behind her coming. And he humbles himself and he blesses God because he knows God ultimately in a providential way is involved in this. And I'll tell you, um, we suffer from just as a people who, who have grown up in a, in a culture that is largely um, secular, where God has been evacuated out of our philosophies of history, you know, where everything is discussed in terms of cause and effect and action and reaction as if all the wars and everything that's happened is just cause effect, with no hand of providence or God's goodness guiding all things, we have a real handicap in seeing reality around us because we largely see it, I think, in my opinion, through that secular worldview 
of thinking these are accidental, random incidences. And, and the men of the Bible didn't see things that way. And I think the heart of faith trained by the Scripture, the biblical reality, we're trained to see that God is involved in all of these little conversations we have, happenstance meetings, planned meetings, uh, rebukes, coming to church on Sunday and listening to a message. That, that God's here and he's, he's, he's in those things if we have the eyes to see. David saw it. This, the Lord sent you. The Lord's one restraining me through you. That, that makes all the difference, I think, in, in, in how we respond to things because he hears the Lord in this. He's not just hearing the voice of a woman. And for us to train our eyes to actually see things that way, that when God brings somebody in your life and, and speaks to you a word of truth, that's the Lord speaking to you. When you get a text message out of the blue like I got about a week ago just saying, hey, I'm praying for you, and it's somebody that never texts me, just at the moment when I felt like, wow, Lord, I just feel feel." Out of, out of energy. I just thought, wow, you care enough to like send a text from somebody that never texts me just to say, I'm praying for you. That, that's not just that person, but I just trust and want to see that that's the hand of the Lord. You know how loved you feel when you, when you see things that way? Imagine if right now you're sitting here, if you believed, you know what? I'm here at the 11 o'clock service on October 21st, 2012, not by accident. And God, you want me to be here and you're going to meet me in some way here. Maybe through conversation, through a meeting, through a message. Maybe there's somebody here who's like David. You're mad about stuff and you're headed down a wrong road. Maybe you're angry at your spouse and you're headed in a wrong direction. Maybe you'll hear the voice of the Lord through Abigail's story. And you'll, you'll, through these lips of Dan Decker saying, hey, brother, sister, turn away. That's seeing things through the eyes of providence. And that's, David is able to read it. He sees things correctly. That's a, a second lesson. And then one f- final thing that is perhaps probably going to be at the heart of this. Because David has, is going to learn something else that is going to change the future of his life in terms of how he relates to people what we might call under his authority. And that is he is going to learn. So you got that? I don't think I put that up for you. That God will avenge evil without us. He doesn't need our help. I know oftentimes we find ourselves angry and the first instinct is I have to take care of this because nobody else is going to take care of it. Wait a second. Hold, hold the phone. There's somebody who's far more passionate about justice than you ever will be. And that's the Lord. And David learns in this story that God can do it without his help. He doesn't need to pick up a sword. Because after David and Abigail part ways, David and his men retreat, and then Abigail heads home. And she's going to do something courageous. She goes home to the moron, who happens to be feasting, and the text tells us he's really drunk and probably engaged in things that are not faithful to his marriage. His wife comes home, and she tells him what she did the next morning after the wine went out of him, is what the text says. And this is what happens. 
Verse 37, his heart died within him, and he became a stone, as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal. Notice the Lord struck him. David didn't touch him. He wasn't anywhere in the vicinity. And he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessedness, and now he's blessing the Lord for justice, that it's done, and that the Lord is the one who did it in a righteous way. Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. He's, with one hand, the Lord is restraining David. With the other hand, he is avenging David. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. The Lord is one who struck him. The Lord is the one who is avenged. And the Lord is the one who returned evil on Nabal's head. And he didn't have to so much as lift his sword. That is to say that you know, the Lord has, has the whole idea of bringing the injustice to justice down. He didn't say, um, vengeance is mine, I might repay. He said, vengeance is mine, it's my domain, I will repay. It's a guarantee. Either it will be paid at the cross or it will be paid, paid in living flesh in death and judgment. He's guaranteed. And I think David would learn through this, you know, God really does have it handled. And he has your stuff handled too. Not to say that we don't have, shouldn't utilize justice system and let justice prevail. That's the ministry of justice. But ultimately it doesn't reside in your hands or even the justice system's hands. It, it resides in the hands of the Lord. And just to trust, all right, Lord, you, you've got this covered. I'm going to trust you have this covered. So let me bring this to a kind of a final appeal. Yes, I think we should be ministers of God's gracious restraint in one another's lives, put ourselves in the middle. Have to have the eyes to be able to see the Lord's providential hand in our meetings and conversations. But ultimately, we must trust that it's the Lord who both restrains and also the one who avenges by his hand. And we trust him with that. So if you're a person who, like in this time of your life, you find yourself in a crisis, and you're angry because you've been deeply hurt. I want you to know, in, at some level, your anger is justified if it's a legitimate offense. Your husband or wife has cheated on you. Um, your boss at work is an, an abusive tyrant. He's a nabel. Um, if you're one of those people and you have your own, maybe it's something in the past or something in the present that's going on right now, and you're just angry about it, and you feel the urge to do something, then I really hope you'll hear the voice of the Lord this morning, the voice of Jesus, who on the one hand can say, I understand your injustice. I experienced the fullness of it myself, and I know what you're going through. But as Jesus trusted himself to his Father in dealing with the injustice, he's now calling you to trust him with the injustice. Because ultimately, it will be Jesus who avenges um, his people, avenges you. We need vindication. Don't lie to yourself. There is an inner longing for vindication, but we can't grab it by our own hands. We let the Lord vindicate us in the perfect, just way and in his timing. I leave you with, with David's words in Psalm 37, which he may have written out of this experience where he almost blew it and recognized how, 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 how dangerous and destructive expressing anger can be. He wrote, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Wait, why? And wait for what? 
Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. That's the rich, arrogant, harsh, mean, immoral guy over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. And he's not saying don't have anger. He's just saying refrain from, from acting out on your anger. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. He personally experienced the truth of that. It just tends toward evil. And here's why. Why we are to wait and why we can trust him. He says, for the evildoer shall be cut off, just like Nabal was cut off. But those who wait, wait for the Lord, shall inherit the land. It's eternal life. I hope you'll wait. Let me ask you if you'll stand with me. And um, I'm going to pray here in a moment for this final little session of worship. Um, but as I do, I have asked um, the elders, pastors, if they would come up um, to these two doors. There'll be a couple here. And we just want to be available for those of you who find yourself in that place where you're, you know what, you're in a position where you're, you've experienced injustice and evil and you're finding yourself really struggling with the anger that it's produced. And you just want someone to just pray over you. It, it, it helps to have family um, putting your hands on your shoulders and saying, listen, we'll pray for you that God will give you strength and allow us to kind of be your uh, armor bearers for, for uh, just a, a, a moment. So if, if you're a person who's in that state, just I hope you won't be shy. Um, it gives us great pleasure and joy to be able to serve you in this way. Just step out of your seat and, and come up and we'd like to pray for you um, as the music plays. And then for those who don't find yourself in that particular season of life, um, you can just give thanks to the Lord and bless him for, for the fact that he's got it covered in your life and, um, and sing. Let me pray. Father, I just pray in this time right now you would provide freedom, um, freedom for those who find themselves in a situation similar to King David's and maybe on the brink of even um, doing things that aren't, aren't righteous and just. And I just pray you grant them courage to just be prayed for, um, that they would sense a, a sympathetic voice that, that, that shares in their um, in their burden. So uh, just minister to us, Holy Spirit, in this time, and we're just thankful for your, your kindness to us. Meet with us um, in this moment. In Christ's name, amen.